Earlier this week, you may have seen a moving and brave statement by our bishop, Andrew Watson, the Bishop of Guildford, in which he revealed that he had been one of the boys physically abused by John Smythe in the early 1980s. He described his experience in the garden shed as violent, excruciating, and shocking, and offered his prayers to those who had suffered, as he saw it, more than him. I join my prayers with his to all who have suffered abuse. The disclosure of abuse is always hard, but the courage required to do so is much to be praised. I am proud of Bishop Andrew and his example. But Bishop Andrew also said something about the wider way in which the story of John Smythe's awful abuse of others had been reported. And I'm going to quote the last paragraph of Bishop Andrew's statement in full. And I quote, I would also like to express the concern of myself and some of my fellow survivors that we are seen as people and not as pawns in some political or religious game. Abusers espouse all theologies and none. And absolutely nothing that happened in the Smythe Shed was the natural fruit of any Christian theology that I've come across before or since. It was abuse perpetrated by a misguided, manipulative, and dangerous man, tragically playing on the longing of his young victims to live godly lives. That's where it ends. Part of what Bishop Andrew is speaking into, it seems to me, is a hasty desire on the part of some in the media, and sadly also the church, to use the actions of one man to tarnish the reputation of the whole church, or part of it. The argument goes that John Smythe is all the proof that is needed, that organized religion in general, or one tradition in particular, is rotten. Now, of course, organized religion, of which the Church of England is perhaps the most obvious example, is not the only institution written off or subjected to such commentary. The police, parliament, the judiciary are at all times written off because of the actions of one individual. But there is something about organized religion, it seems to me, that makes it the focus for particularly bad press. It may be that organized religion has been, in the eyes of some, embarrassingly slow to adapt to modern changes in society. Read the press this week as the General Synod receives a report from the House of Bishops arguing that the Church of England should maintain its doctrine that, the mar that marriage is a gift of God in creation and the union of one, one man and one woman for the good of family life and the flourishing of society. And you'll hear choirs of criticism objecting to the fact that religion has not got with the program. But behind all that may be something else. I suspect there is a perception that as the church maintains to biblical teaching, it presents itself as a group of morally superior religious people who look down on others. To put it bluntly, religion is seen as a group of people who know they are right and have made it, and look down on others who are wrong and haven't. Not a loving community, as our vision for the year is, but as a judgmental, a superior community. A club, if you like, for morally like-minded and like-acting people. Now, I'm going to suggest this morning that that view 
cannot be sustained if you go back to the person, words, and example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look together this morning at a story from Jesus' ministry which blows that view out of the water because in it, Jesus rails against those who see themselves as morally superior and affirms a completely different way of coming to God. If you're here this morning seeking Christian faith, seeking to explore what it looks like and what it feels, I hope your preconceptions about following Jesus and organized religion will be challenged in a helpful way. If you're here this morning as a committed follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you too will be challenged to be part of building a community which is really patterned on him. I'm going to start this morning by just helping us imagine that scene as Jesus sat and ate with Simon the Pharisee. Then I want us to think about the two types of community which are pointed to in this story and then ask the crucial question, what type of community are we? So first of all, I want us to imagine and think about the story, to feel the story that Luke describes, and in particular, the shocks that come along the way. And to do that, I want us to imagine this morning that you are one of the other guests at Simon the Pharisee's dinner party, okay? If you want to close your eyes while I take us on that journey, please do so. Uh, but whatever it is, let's go on that journey. You're one of the guests, okay? Let's go. It's the end of a long, hot day. You arrive at Simon's house. A fine house it is, befitting Simon's standing in the town. You're pleased to be there. After all, Simon is highly respected by all right-thinking people. Sure, he takes the religious law very seriously and wants others to do the same, but with all this loose living around, not to mention the godless Romans, you think that's a good thing. You're pleased to be his friend, and having dinner with him is the ultimate accolade. You know he doesn't eat with just anybody. As you arrive, you see the food on the table at the front of the house. You're secretly quite pleased that other people, as they walk past, are going to see you eating with Simon the Pharisee. That will do your standing no harm. You take your sandals off and lie down on your side, ready to eat. You look around the table. You know most of the people there, all town worthies. But there's one person you don't recognize immediately. But you recognize his voice. You've heard him speaking to crowds from the lake. This man, Jesus, a teacher, yes, a miracle worker, some say. Simon must have invited this man, Jesus, to check him out. Work out if he was really on your side or not. Certainly, Simon seems to be looking at him fairly warily, weighing him up. You've been eating for a while, when suddenly you realize that there's someone who's come off the street and has come up to the table and is standing behind Jesus, standing over his feet, which are stretched out behind him. You're shocked to see who it is. It's one of the prostitutes from the town, a woman who is as popular with the fishermen as she is with the Roman soldiers. What is she doing here? As she stands over Jesus, she sobs and her tears drop on his feet. She sees this and so gets down, unties her hair, another gasp that produces from the other guests, and starts to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. Then she kisses his feet. Ugh! 
and cracks open the neck of a jar of perfume and pours it over him. You don't know where to look. It's so embarrassing, this woman making such a scene. You can see that Simon's not impressed. His eyes have narrowed, and you hear him mutter something under his breath, something about Jesus. Jesus opens his mouth, but but it's not to send the woman away. He's got something to say to Simon. He tells a story, a story, about two people who owed some money, one a lot and one rather less. They were both let off the debt, and then Jesus asked Simon, who would love the money lender more? Simon doesn't look best pleased. You can hear him say grimly, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. Jesus smiles at him. You always were a good judge, he says. Then he lays, really lays into Simon, saying this woman, this woman has treated him so much better than Simon. Apparently Simon hadn't washed Jesus' feet or greeted him with a kiss or put oil on his head, whereas the woman had done all of that. She loved much, said Jesus, because she's been forgiven much. Then he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And she does, goes off into the night. You're left in utter shock. Some of the guests you hear muttering, saying, who does he think he is forgiving sins? But you're left with another question. She's been told she's been saved, forgiven. But what about Simon? And what about me? Let's come back into the room. Because I want us to experience that story like that, to feel the shock that would have been around this event when it had happened. And let's go, therefore, a bit more deeply and look at the two types of community that are pointed to in this story. The first type of community, the one that's lived out by Simon and his guests around the table, is described quite clearly. clearly, But there's there's a second type of community being built here between Jesus and the sinful woman. And the contrast between those two types of communities is unmistakable. So let's look at what's going on. What's going on? What type of community is that community of Simon and his chums around the table? I think there are four types of characteristics of this community. The first of all, it's a community based on, it's a community formed on the basis of invitation given to those who have kept the moral and religious rules. You see, Simon did not eat and you ate who you ate with as a sign of who you were friends with, he didn't eat with just anybody. His community was one of selected certain people, people who had kept the dietary laws, kept themselves ritually clean, and had an equally clean moral slate. The invitation was only on the basis of a good moral CV. That's how the community was formed. Secondly, it was a community of like-minded people. Everyone around that table would have been expected to share Simon's religious and moral worldview. There was no room for people who took a different moral view or favoured a different lifestyle. This was a community of people like us, a first century echo chamber, if you like. Third, this was a community with a high awareness of other people's sin and low awareness of their own. As soon as the woman starts kissing Jesus' feet, Simon jumps up onto his moral high grounds. She's a sinner, he says to himself. 
No acknowledgement of his own sin, but a strong awareness of hers. When Jesus upbraids Simon for his lack of hospitality, there is not a hint of apology, but a strong awareness of what other people have done wrong. And fourthly, this is a community of low practical love. Simon may be feeding Jesus, but there is little love in his attitude towards him. Duty, perhaps, but no love. All the generous acts of a loving host, Simon's done none of them. This is a community low on love. But there's another community being pointed to here. A community being created by Jesus with his treatment of the sinful woman. And it's the exact opposite of the community of Simon and his friends. First of all, this is a community where the invitation is not just to some, but to all. There are no moral steps to get an invitation to this community, because if there were, this woman wouldn't have made any of them. But somehow this woman knows that this Jesus community is open to all as a gift, not as something to be earned. Secondly, this is a community where everyone is not the same. Just looking at Jesus and the woman is proof of that. Here is Jesus, a good Jewish man, a rabbi, without a hint of sexual sin or scandal, letting himself be kissed and anointed by a prostitute. Different ends of the social status scale, different genders, different backgrounds, different everything. But the Jesus community has room for both. Thirdly, this is a community with a high awareness of one's own sin. There is no doubt that this woman knew that she was a sinner. She did not need Simon to tell her that. I think her tears at the feet of Jesus are in part a sign of her own brokenness, her knowledge of her own sin. This is a woman who didn't need to look down on others to see sin. She simply looked in the mirror. And fourthly, this is a community which is high on love. This woman, sensing the forgiveness of Jesus even before he says it, overflows in love. Somebody said, well, why did Jesus forgive her when she hadn't publicly repented? Sometimes people say that. I think we forget that Jesus could look into people's hearts. And I believe that when he looked into this woman's heart, he saw someone who was grieved by her own sin and wanted a forgiveness which she believed only Jesus could give. And she was right. That's what led to the love. This alabaster jar of perfume, which she breaks over Jesus' feet, it was most likely her most treasured possession. Once broken, it could never be resealed. She was loving Jesus with everything she had. So here we see two different types of community at play in the story. One populated by people who are there because of a good moral CV, are surrounded with like-minded people who are gifted at spotting the sins in others but ignoring their own and are low in actual acts of love. The other community where all are invited, where people look different, where personal sin is the sin seen most clearly and where there is overflowing love. Now, if you had to pick one of those communities to be one, you'd use, the word to dis- you'd use the word religious. Which community looks most religious to you? If you're here exploring faith this morning, I guess I think I know the answer you're going to give, because that first community, the one of Simon and his friends, 
is the one that most people would describe as religious. A good moral CV, like-minded with others, judgmental with others, but lacking in love. Actually, that's what most people think of when they hear the word religious. I've had enough feedback over the years to people to know that's what most people think. But if you're here this morning and you think that's the model of a religious community, you need to hear very clearly that Jesus did not affirm that community. He condemned it. He did not affirm Simon or his friends. He said they fell way short of what God was calling them to be. That was not the way of Jesus. It may be the way of organized religion then and now, but it was not the way of Jesus. Perhaps this contrast might help. The way of Simon and his friends and the way of organized religion down the ages is this. Do good and you're in. Do good and you're in. Reach the right moral standards and you could be part of the crowd. But that wasn't the way of Jesus. Instead of do good and you're in, Jesus taught and lived, you're in, now do good. That's the difference. Instead of do good and you're in, Jesus taught and lived, you're in, now do good. Jesus welcomed all people to be loved and forgiven and then called them to follow him and walk in his ways. You see, we need to get this straight because the media loves to get it wrong. Jesus was not soft on sin or holiness. He was not Mr. Laissez-faire. He upheld the moral law of the Old Testament. He believed that marriage between a man and a woman was the only place for sexual intimacy. Hence why he said to this woman, she'd sinned much. She had done. Elsewhere, he said to a woman who'd been caught in adultery, go away and sin no more. And when he says to the woman today, go in peace, that means go in the peace of good living. Shalom. That meant that go in the way in which God has called you to live. But that call to holiness did not come first. Not do good and you're in. But you're in. Now do good. The first step is not proving to Jesus how good you are. The first step is realizing how bad you are. In that like the woman and like me, you are someone who has walked away from God and needs his forgiveness. If you're here this morning exploring faith, you need to hear this very clearly. You do not have to be good enough to come to God. You just need to recognize that you never will be. That like every person who has ever lived, you need forgiveness from a holy God, and Jesus offers you exactly that. When he died on the cross, Jesus took on himself all our sin so that when we say sorry, we find our sin taken off us by Jesus. That is the ABC of Christian faith. A, admit that you are a sinner. B, believe that Jesus loves you and died for you. And C, Confess with your lips and your heart that you want that forgiveness and you want Jesus in your life. That's what it is to be a Christian. If you're confused when you hear the headlines 
or when you catch up with news from the church, just remember that is the ABC of Christian faith. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus loves you and died for you and confess with your lips that you want Jesus in your life. That's what it is. It may be today, that's a step you want to make. That actually you're happy to pray, Lord, I admit, Lord, I believe, and Lord, I confess. I'll help us do that in a moment. But let me add a word to those of us here this morning who are seeking to follow Jesus already in our daily lives. We need to recognize that in generations past, the church throughout the country did a great job of behaving like Simon and his friends. Do good and you're in, do bad and you're out. It felt like a club for like-minded people with good moral CVs who love to look at ghast at what other people did wrong. Now, I know we want to build a different type of community here at HTC, a community where everyone knows that they can be loved and forgiven by Jesus, whatever they've done, a community where we see God's grace at work in people different to us, a community where we grieve over our own sin rather than delight in spotting others, and where our love flows out from the love that we have received in Jesus. Now, that community cannot be manufactured It can only be created, as had happened that day in Simon's house, by a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Without that, we will always slip back into being a religious community and a moral club. With it, we will be the people Jesus is calling us to be. So let me ask you some key questions this morning that fall out of our story. First of all, do you know how much you've been forgiven? Do you know how much you've been forgiven? You see, there may be a problem for us, or for some of us here today, is that we just don't have a past as colourful as the woman in our story. Or if we do, it was years ago. And for years, we've been living, for all intents and purposes, a good life. So if anything, if we like anybody in the story, it's more Simon than the sinful woman. But that's a really dangerous place to be if we stay in that place. It's the way of pride and self-righteousness, and Jesus condemns that again and again. Jesus calls us to be humble, aware that we continue to sin, perhaps not as publicly as some, but in our thoughts and our hearts, when we squeeze God out or pretend he wasn't looking, or think things are our own instead of the God who gave them to us. And so we need to continue to rely on Jesus for his mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Because the wonderful news is that when we come to God in repentance, he forgives us again and again and again. I love the story of John Newton, the ex-slave trader, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, he turned from being a slave trader to being an abolitionist, uh, to being a clergyman, He ministered in a local church uh, until he died. In his last years, he went almost completely blind. And there's a wonderful quote at the end of his life where he says, I have forgotten much, I can see little, but this I know. Two things I know, he says, that I am a great sinner and I have a great saviour. I am a great sinner and I have a great saviour. Not I was a great sinner once, but I am a great sinner, but I have a great saviour. 
Do we know how much we've been forgiven? Because the woman who wept over Jesus' feet knew how much she'd been forgiven. And Simon thought he'd been forgiven not a bit. And that's what made his love dry up to just a trickle. And the woman loved with all the forgiveness she'd been received. And the second question is this. Are you living out that forgiveness you've received in loving God and loving others? Loving God through seeking to obey him and loving others by welcoming others in, not judging them but showing them all the compassion that Jesus did. I long that we are known more and more as a community of grace where people receive the welcome that Jesus gave to the woman that day and have the chance to respond to him before we talk about what godly living looks like. Now, we can't change the media headlines this week or any week, I don't think. But we can control what we do and we can control our own hearts. We can ensure that our daily encounter with Jesus Christ is so filled with thanksgiving for his forgiveness and grace in our lives that that keeps us humble, thankful for all he's given us makes us compassionate on those who are different, who those perhaps have yet to know that love and forgiveness of Jesus for themselves, and helps us build a community where his love is shown and lived out to others. My prayer is that as we respond to Jesus Christ in repentance and receive his forgiveness afresh this morning, is that we will grow into that community that looks so different to that religious community that met round Simon and his table but one that looks like one that was such a community where the gospel spread throughout the world. Let me pray.